Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew and Jay. Thanks, Ray. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 3. This episode was recorded on June 30th, 2018. I'm your host, Jay Strawn, with my co-host, Drew Freeman. Thank you much, Jay. Yes, welcome indeed. And for this episode, Jay is finally being put on the hot seat, because for today we have from Swift Design Patterns by Tutorial, Jay, and I think the longtime technical editor and author for RayWendelick.com, Joshua Green. Josh, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. It is great. I... This is a topic that I think I both love and loathe. I think everybody has that sort of love-hate relationship with design patterns. And and for me, it goes back personally to an interview I had when I was young in my career. And somebody asked me about Gang of Four, uh, the book, uh, the Bible, if you'll forgive me, on design patterns. And I didn't know what it was. Little did I also know that by not knowing what the book was, that was the end of that interview. Wow. <laughs> I've never heard of it that. It was. I, the second I did not know what Gang of Four was, I could see the lights in his eyes turn out. And obviously, for those of you who are newer programmers who do not know what Gang of Four is, yes, we will have that in the show notes. You need to just devour that book. And then, like any good programmer, realize that most of what you read in that book, you may not use the way you read it in the book. <laughs> Let's back things up for people who, who are new at this. How do you explain what a design pattern is? Design patterns were introduced by the Gang of Four book. Now, the title for that is a bit lengthy, actually. It's actually Design Patterns, Elements of Reusable Object-Oriented Software. Now, this book is a bit heavy, but essentially, it describes design patterns as reusable solutions to common development problems. So instead of reinventing the wheel, you can use something like a delegate pattern or model view controller or any of number of patterns that are existing solutions to common problems you're likely to encounter in development. So we've got so we, we've got some great names here for some of these yeah. design patterns. Can you give me sort of a non-technical view of what a design pattern would be? Definitely. Imagine you own a gardening company. Okay. Now you've got the largest job ever. Hundreds of flowers and trees. Okay. Your standard process is usually for employees to carry each plant to the right location and place them individually. Mm. However, you're a bit concerned. It's going to take forever. It sounds like that. I mean, it, it definitely sounds like that's scaling issues there. Like it, it worked when there were just a few things. Now you've got like hundreds and thousands and you got to find, I guess, a more optimal way to do it. Mm-hmm. It, it, it. Exactly. And initially when you're starting out, it may not matter which route you chose. In this case, with the gardener, you could carry these in place, and if there's only a few flowers, it doesn't really matter. But whenever you start to scale, you know, you have to look around and figure out what the best thing to do. You know, as a gardener, you might ask others and find out, well, they use wheelbarrows and carts. So you tell your employees, load everything up onto a wheelbarrow, if it's a tree, or a cart, if it's a flower, and move those into place. And essentially, that's... that's everything to do with design patterns. Okay, so effectively, just breaking it down here, it sounds like you can find any way to solve a problem. I mean, and that's the art of programming. The art of programming is, I've got a problem, i got to fix it. But as you begin to scale, or as, as your situation begins to change, there are other tried and true methods that people have developed to say, this will make things 
easier. This is a cleaner way to do it so that you're not killing yourself <laughs> every time you want to do it. And I guess eventually you get experience from these things so that you know, oh, come on, I'm doing this kind of a job. I know that this will do that job so much more easily. Am I getting the non-technical way of describing this? Exactly. So scaling could be an issue or it could be that maybe you don't know the solution. So you look around and find what other people are doing. So you don't have to always invent the solution. Oftentimes it's already been solved. And that's essentially what design patterns are. They're template solutions in development. Just like with this gardening example, you know, other gardeners use wheelbarrows and carts. So instead of building your own cart, you talk to other people and find out that a wheelbarrow is the best thing to use because it already exists and you know it works. And the nice thing here is, I mean, you, you deal with something like UI kits. You don't have to draw your own widgets, mm. but this is more programmability. You know, you, you don't have to do your own wheelbarrow, so to speak. You don't have to do your own cart. There are these styles, or let's call them, I don't know, design patterns to help you put your code together in ways. Now, you mentioned a couple early ones, beforehand you talked about you know, what were some of the ones that you mentioned though the ones that everybody knows by name there's several that are very common in ui kit uh delegation pattern is is all over the place apple actually chose to model all of their systems basically after model view controller so those are the ones that you're just going to see all over the place and are, you know very tried and true and nearly every single project you'll you'll definitely use them yeah model view controller when you say UI kit, you have to remember the UI kit is the iOS version that came out of App Kit, which was the Mac version, which actually came from NS Kit, which was next mm -hmm. before Ob Objective when Objective C came in. And when Objective C came in, I, I remember them saying it's time to learn model view controller, and uh, and to know that that is basically one of the classic box uh, design patterns. Yeah, yeah, and I, I do want to point out too, you know, in the book, the design patterns by we actually do call MVC um, a design pattern. Some people actually might say it's actually an architectural pattern in that it's basically the difference is how big is it? You know, is it something that's spanning just a few classes or the entire uh, system? So the, the neat thing about uh, design patterns is they do have this flexibility where if you need to structure your systems, we actually have structural patterns. If you you know, need to interact between different objects, you have behavioral patterns. And then the last big category, if you will, is the, the creational patterns that help create stuff for us. So for most situations you actually get into, there is a type of pattern that will help you out. Okay, just give me a quick summary again, because I remember with this, the patterns are broken into specific ones. Just give me the list of them without their descriptions. You've got the structural patterns. Structural. You've got behavioral patterns. Behavioral. And creational patterns. Creational. So is it pretty much just those three, or there are a couple that don't fall into any of those, or are there are a few others that have their own little mini groups? The Gang of Four, they described these three as the main types of patterns. As development has gone on, we have extended this a bit to another category that's maybe a bit larger than what you'd call a design pattern called architectural patterns. Yeah, you'd mentioned. And this may be that encompasses all of them. Or even sometimes uh, I've seen other developers group in like threading type patterns. One of the patterns that I think comes up a lot, you know, I often like to refer to the Emacs VI wars. And those are the two Unix editors and people seem to always take a side. The taking side things that I hear most is singletons. 
I hear, I hear people say, this is an important design pattern. I hear people say, this is a design pattern you should avoid. This is a design pattern that is evil and overused. So first of all, let me put it on you to explain what a singleton is. And then we can talk about, is it good, bad, evil, or is it just like everything else tool that needs <laughs> to be treated appropriately? <laughs> a singleton is a class that actually restricts only one instance can ever be created. So that's the, the purest definition of it. There's some other spinoffs, though, like Singleton Plus, which says, well, there's one default instance, but you're allowed to create more. So both of those are are fairly common. Hmm. Honestly, I would not heard of Singleton Plus. I, I shows you how long I've, I've been looking into books. So, okay, so the singleton you can only make one of. Yes, so, so a singleton is one you can only make one of. And then the, the singleton plus would be like a default instance. So if you think of like uh, like NS user defaults, you've got the, uh, you know, the, the standard defaults. But if you really want to, for that special niche case, you can create additional ones. Most of the time, you're going to use the default. But if you need to, go ahead and spin your own. Can you give me a quick example off the top of your head that is just a simple standard singleton in AppKit? Uh, well, the the app uh, the application itself is actually a singleton, so that's actually a pretty good use of it. Okay, <laughs> you went right to the bottom there. That was perfect. Yeah, you're basically instantiating the application, and you're not really ever instantiating a secondary application. You just have the main one that you talk to. I exactly. Um, iOS actually doesn't allow you to even instantiate a second uh, UI application, and if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense actually mm -hmm. like in what conditions would you know you have multiple applications running in the context of ios you're only allowed to interact with just the one application uh, that your code is running under so ios restricts it to that i'd say that that's probably a good use of a singleton do you feel that people overuse it is that something that is overused is it something that should only be used sparingly or is it something that really it has its, its uses anywhere when i think about singletons it seems like a good idea to have one maybe default value or only have one version of a class running because if you don't have to load it over and over again, then I don't see why you would want to have your processor loading something over and over again unless it was necessary. So, I mean, my stance on singletons would be great. Use them. What do you think about that? So to an extent, I, I agree. To an extent, I, I think that that kind of leads to uh, abuse at times. Mm. So the, the problem is where everything gets stuck into a singleton. So that this singleton grows to like thousands of lines long and then things just become a mess. Oh. In, in, in other cases, I've also seen it where developers will directly pin, depend on a singleton and then just access it just anywhere in the code base, uh, like in the middle of a method, for example. So that makes it very hard to test. Mm -hmm. So I'd say I'm not in the camp of singletons or, or evil. But I do think that they are overused. Normally, if I'm going to have a singleton, I'll either make it a singleton plus, just in case that other instances need to be created for whatever niche cases, or put like protocols around it so that instead of depending directly on the singleton, you can actually depend on the protocol. And then for testing reasons or future compatibility, you can have other implementations, uh, either mocks or something else 
if it changes. You know, so you have the the singleton that implements a protocol, but you use the protocol directly. So that's sort of my take on the best of both worlds, if you will. So use a singleton, but don't just randomly use it in the middle of a method or something. You want to make it obvious you're using a singleton. And I'll be honest, I'm loading that question because I've always been of the belief that any tool is usable and misusable. I mean, the the wonderful real-world example is a chainsaw can be used to make beautiful ice sculptures and can also be used to make Toby Huber horror films. <laughs> I'll explain the reference for you later, Jay. Thanks. <laughs> it's always fun having, having lots of references for Jay to go home and, and look up. We'll put them in the show notes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and the other one that you mentioned, yeah, I, 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 under, I know some of this stuff, but hearing it from you, who both who have written the book, really helps. Um, you had talked about delegation, and yes, delegation is very prominent in in iOS, in in, uh, in Swift and Objective C. Talk about it. From the point of view of design patterns, can you explain delegation from that view? I'd say delegation came about when we had probably several different things happening, right? In some instances, people are saying, well, we need a means to create a generic component and reuse this wherever we need it. So a table view, for example, actually has a, a delegate and a data source. Technically, both of those use what's what's called the delegate pattern. With that there, it's just saying another object, give me, you know, give me something so that I don't fulfill this myself. So in that case, it makes it reusable and uh, generic, if you will. Uh, the other case would be breaking uh, potentially like retain cycles. So instead of me saying, well, I know about the child that I'm creating, and then the child knows about the parents. Normally, that's not considered a good uh, practice because it it does lead to tight coupling. It also, you know, can lead to like strong to strong references and leaking memory. Delegation can actually also help break those uh, as well. So I'd say that those are the two main use cases of it, and why we actually, you know, consider it to be a, a valuable pattern that appears in nearly every single application. One of the things that I really love about uh, you mentioned the table view in in, uh, in Swift Objective C is the concept of being able to swap out that delegate. So you basically have the table view itself that knows how to make a table. And it knows the concept of make a table, find the rows on the table, and build cells for a table. And the delegate says, well, here's how you build a cell. Here's what you put in the cell. And that, uh, that exactly. ability to basically say, well, I'm going to swap the delegate. On the fly, you are rewriting how your table works. And all you're doing is just changing which secondary class is the workhorse. And and I think that's in itself incredibly powerful to be able to say, okay, you know what you're doing, and I don't need to build another one. I can just have you basically have two personalities because we like schizophrenic code. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you don't need to care about how our cells you know, recycled and reused and positioned on the screen whenever the user scrolls, table view handles that for you. The delegate and the, uh, the data source provide, well, here's what I'm actually displaying. So it, it is really powerful. It's, it's, a, it's definitely one of the uh, uh, most common uh, used uh, patterns. And the data source is wonderful as well on the table view. Uh, the simplest one is if you have, say, your uh, standard merchant app selling products, and you have your products that are for sale, you have your products for rent, they're all products. And you can basically say, well, okay, one data source is the table of items for sale, one, da one data source is the objects for rent, and then you just simply click a button 
and that, you know, maybe a tab over the table saying, I want to see this one or that one. And you flip out the data source and all of a sudden you've just changed all the data in your table with a tab. It's very simple. Definitely. And I, I do want to point out that the, the, the data source is cool because it definitely changes the visuals. But you can actually combine this with a, another pattern as well called the, the strategy pattern. So back with the whole, you know, rentals, uh, properties and so forth. If something else should be shown or, you know, instead of a, a, a buy screen, it should be a lease screen. You can actually change that out with, okay, here's a different delegate. And those delegates can be implementation of, you know, a strategy for, you know, do this whenever this is clicked in the case of a purchase, do this in case of, you know, a, a rental. So these design patterns, not only are they useful in and of themselves, they actually combine really well with one another uh, a lot of the time. Yeah, that uh, that makes me think about. Um, so I was giving a talk on design patterns on Wednesday, and I felt like after every example, someone would raise their hand and say, well, what if you change this slightly? Is it still an example of the design pattern? And the answer is yes, they're abstract uh, for a reason. That's that's their strength. You know, you can apply them and combine them. And uh, and it helps make your app so much more readable and organized. Totally agree, Jay. I, I, I love the flexibility that design patterns offer. And, you know, it, it's not a concrete implementation. It's just something that is a starting point. Another nicety I, I see on Teams is if you are saying, well, I'm using the delegate pattern or I'm using, you know, whatever common pattern that everybody knows about, you don't have to explain it. You can just say, I'm using this and somebody else immediately gets it. So not only do we have this awesome reuse, we also have this nice shared vocabulary that's created by, you know, shared knowledge of design patterns. And I think that's one of the very important things with with Gang of Four and in design patterns is they codified the vocabulary so that we all are taking these relatively abstract concepts, but at least giving them that one key phrase that says, here's how I'm thinking. And now you have a word that should give you an idea how I'm thinking so that we can both be on the same page, even though we're writing very different piles of code and we may be on different ends of that. Josh, th these are, it's good to hear it this way. I mean, I, I was very lucky. I got to attend RW DevCon this year. And at RW DevCon, there are always little surprises that pop up. And this book, or more properly, this poster card, <laughs> was one of the fantastic surprises. We got an early look at this book. And it, it's it's just stunning. And it's, it is. It's very friendly. And, and, it, and it takes you through these in a sensible way using Swift code. Josh, this is it, this is great stuff, and and I'm looking forward to to diving it a bit deeper with Jay in the second half of the show. I, I do want to say, w without Jay, it wouldn't have been possible. You know, she she really stepped up towards the <laughs> you know the the middle of this book, and you know we we were struggling to to get some of the uh, concepts taken care of. She really picked up with a lot of the slack, so definitely big kudos to her. Thanks. Yeah, it was. It was a lot of work, but I'm really, I learned so much. It's its helped with every project that I do now. So now we've got a, a fairly good look at the concept of design patterns and a couple of the, the, the patterns. And in the second half of the show, Jay's going to be giving us a deeper look into some of the design patterns that she uses, some projects she's done. And we're going to talk more about solid and why it's really important to learn about those principles as well. We'll have more in the second half of the show. Welcome back. Section two. We're going to dive a little bit deeper into some of the 
more complex design patterns and I want to talk a little about solid and we're going to put Jay on the spot. And I want to back up a little and tell a little history. If you listen to season seven, we ran the season a little differently where we had six guests and the hosts did about six episodes each worth of tech. Well, we've got it easy this year because we've got so many guests coming in. You know, we'll we'll do te- our, our days of tech, but definitely not as many. But we're doing our days of tech, or at least Jay is today. So we're going to put Jay on the on the spot. And <laughs> I mean, you you help write the book, so yeah. Let's talk about some of the design patterns that you've worked with, and and we and and of course we've already cut you off on some of the really really easy ones you could just sort of dismiss, like NBC and mm-hmm. and delegate and all that. But let's let's talk about some of the the meteor. Uh, de- uh, design patterns. Yeah, well, uh, my favorite ones that uh, that I wrote about were definitely MVVM and Flyweight, uh, mostly because in the Flyweight example, I got to make a dad joke generator, so that was pretty funny. <laughs> uh, oh. Oh. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, those are... Uh, I really like the factory pattern, too. It's an organized way to make different kinds of objects. So let's talk about the factory pattern. Yeah. I've looked at it, and that's one of the ones I think I've shied away from once or twice just because Mm -hmm. my head didn't quite wrap around it. So let's walk through the the factory pattern, what it's for, and the ways to think it through. Well, in our simple factory, an example that we use is that we have three different kinds of objects. Like, they're all the same object, but... The when they show on the screen, it's a different image based on a value stored in a property. So the factory is it's creating different kinds of the same thing. Uh, and it's doing that. And basically, the idea of a factory is that instead of writing something that says, if the value is this, do this. If the value is that, do that. Uh, you've got a factory where you create the object and it just checks the case and uh, and it makes uh, it makes what you're asking for in a less convoluted way. So are we creating, so we're not creating subclasses. We basically have a property which flags the difference between the instances. In this exa- in, in that example, yes. Let's say you just have a lot of objects. And if you don't know the values of those objects at the time when you're writing the app, you're going to need a factory to organize them into different things. Like if you're making a network call, we can't make the objects until after that call is completed. So we can't hard code what they're going to look like, which is why you write a factory to create them for you. And one of the uh, one of the projects I was trying to put together was a complex crypto coin wallet where it would look at an address, do the interpretation, then create a sub object that would be the appropriate class for that style crypto coin wallet. So you might have a Bitcoin address and it, or an Ether address. And for those of mm. you who don't know cryptocurrencies, don't worry. I think it's slowly becoming passe again for a little while. <laughs> Good. I want to buy a graphics card that isn't inflated with the price. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was one of the side industries that got clobbered rather nastily. So in that factory, you're actually using uh, subclasses then? Yes. Yeah, it, it was like I, I, I wanted to have like a master class that was generic address account, but then I had subclasses that were the crypto, the, sorry, the Bitcoin variant, the Ether variant, the light variant. And then the factory was sitting there saying, OK, so this is what I've interpreted. Instantiate this one. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess it's it's getting away from the if then leaning more toward the case. Well, So the hard thing about a fact or just kind of the not so 
solid design patterny thing about factories is that and we can actually back up and talk about solid for a second but one of the principles of solid is that uh you have an open closed principle and you want classes to be open for extension but closed for modification and the way that a factory works you actually there's a, a locked number of cases and so it technically it kind of breaks that principle but you kind of have to sometimes uh, design patterns are more about minimizing bad practices, but sometimes you can't avoid something. Uh, what do you think about that, Josh? Yeah, um, in in the case of a factory, I think that's actually intentional. So the idea is the factory may actually be switching on uh, something that you're getting from like a, a networking response. And you may later on down the line add additional subclasses or things that conform to a protocol. And from that standpoint, the factory doesn't conform to open and closed, but the rest of your code does. So instead of having multiple violations throughout the code base, you only have it in one uh, spot, which is the factory. So that's sort of the trade-off that we make, that we have to do this somewhere. We'd prefer to break it just one single time. Okay, so let's back it up and let's confront the, the, the solid elephant in the room. <laughs> Talk to me about solid. First, tell me what solid is. First of all, SOLID is an acronym for five design principles, and those principles are S, single responsibility, O, open-close principle, L, Liskov substitution principle, I, interface segregation, and D is dependency inversion. So it, it seems to be almost not just a design pattern, but an entire mental way to approach programming that most effectively draws in design patterns for their typical usage. I'd say that design patterns are built from uh, design principles. Okay. So it's almost like a way, like uh, Legos, if you will, you can put together, I need these sorts of things. And if I follow uh, solid patterns, even if I don't know the design pattern that's most appropriate, you may actually luck into one. Oh, okay. Yeah, you'd said the, the interface design at one point, and MVC just really naturally seems to be a growth out of keep the interface and the business logic separate. Absolutely. You know, single responsibility. I feel like so many design patterns are kind of trying to uh, do one thing at a time or limit your code or split this up into different classes so that each class is only doing one thing and then you're minimizing your view controller. Well, that's always been the idea of object-oriented programming is that mm -hmm. your class is supposed to be a specific type of object that does one thing. I mean, we go back to the abstract animal and the cat or the dog or the abstract vehicle mm -hmm. and a bicycle or a car. And we're trying not to pile everything into the final object, but we're trying to abstract up the way. So single responsibility really is the goal that you know what this class does, you know what the class is for. Mm -hmm. Of course, you get into more complex classes that sort of, I have this class that does this, but then I have this class's cash class, or this class is this class, but that still each one does their own specific job. I, I'd say w one thing that's a bit confusing about uh single responsibility is it's not necessarily that your class can only have one method or only really even do one thing. It's it's it only has like one one reason to change is, is the, the general description. So in the case of like a, a caching system, well, the only reason that the caching system would change is because the characteristics of the cache change. It wouldn't be because I'm like supporting a different networking protocol or something. 
you know? So single responsibility is uh, actually about why are we changing it? The other thing that you guys mentioned were open and close. Let's, let's, let, let's get a, a clear review on what you mean by open and close. We were talking about this when we were talking about the factory pattern, but the open-close principle is that classes should be open for uh, extension, but closed for modification. So you want to write something that's very abstract with the idea that you're not going to go in and change it, but you can make extensions later to add to it. Yeah, the, the idea is kind of if you write code, there's a chance you may screw it really? up. <laughs> so if you don't write additional code, I, I write you code won't. all the time. <laughs> I mean, do you know how many 1.0s I've shipped and never had to do another dot release on? Because right, I don't. Right. I, I, I haven't. It, well, it's like. If you're using a framework, um, you you can't you can't go in and change a cocoa pod. That's closed, uh, but you can extend it. That's the an example of the principle. The brilliant thing about this this idea is that something can be changed without actually changing it. Mm. So it's the idea that we can have like an abstract class, right? Which Swift doesn't technically support abstract classes, but we can have protocols, or we can have classes that basically defer, you know, implementation to a subclass and doesn't provide everything we need. We never change, you know, that protocol concept, or we never change that base class. You know, it's closed for a modification, or excuse me, it's 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 you know, we're not going to change it any further, right? So it's mm -hmm. it's uh, open for extension, open for extension, yeah, closed for. Uh, modification. So open for extension part being, well, we could subclass it or we could literally provide an extension if we, you know, needed to in the case of Swift. But anything we're going to do there, it's not going to break our base. Okay. And of course, the factory, because of by the nature that with the factory, you may discover, oh, no, I've left something out. Sometimes we have to go back and sort of scratch the, the itch and say that this still needed a little bit of a, a modification. Right. That's sort of the brilliant thing about the factory is we accept that it breaks open closed because um, if you have like networking and you're, you're still building onto all of the types you're going to support or whatnot, you may add them later on instead of having various classes if elsing on this thing or switching on it, only the factory does it. So... You know, the, the design patterns, you know, they don't always exemplify every single solid principle, but if they're breaking one, like in the case of factory, there's normally a reason. Now, I think we had S, O, and I. What was L? L is actually one of the ones that you, well, a lot of, it's the Liskov substitution principle, which uh, at first glance, you might be thinking, well, what, what is that? Um, but it's the idea that if you have something and then you have a subtype of it, you should be able to. Uh, substitute in one for the other, uh, and that shouldn't be a problem. And I believe you can use protocols to uh, to make that happen. What do you think, Josh? What's what's your take on the Liskov substitution? Oh, I'm, I'm going to challenge you, Jay. What, why is okay. it called? Why is it called Liskov? Oh, well, that it's named after the person who wrote about it. Yeah, Barbara yeah. Lis Barbara Liskov had another sort of brilliant idea here, being that uh, if you've got a uh, a base class. Your subclasses uh, may not violate its contract. Mm -hmm. So basically, mm -hmm. if you like change a method in a subclass, if it would be unexpected, uh, should somebody not know about that subclass, right? If they just have a reference to the base, they should be able to treat it completely, you know, without caring. Mm -hmm. So in the case of a factory, if we return instances of the base, uh, 
you know, we're, we're saying, oh, well, this is a shape. We can, you know, do everything that a shape does. It's got an area. It's got, a, you know, number of points, whatever, whatever, right? If we violate that, it can't calculate an area in one of the subclasses. Well, that would confuse the heck out of anybody using that subclass and potentially be, you know, very disastrous to the program. So Liskov substitution says this is a bad idea. Subclasses should not violate the, the base. Nice. Yeah, the shapes were a very good example of that, being able to uh, substitute them in. Very nice. So I guess that's L. Uh, we can go into I. What do you think the interface segregation principle is all about? Hmm. Drew. <laughs> well, I mean, we talked about the, the, the integration. We, we talked about the interface segregation with MVC. Yeah. Uh, we, we talked about the concept of, uh, you know, keeping the things that talk to the widgets away from the things that manage the business logic. Mm-hmm. Again, which the interface segregation itself is sort of a the, the, the single responsibility. It's like you're operating on a screen. I, I am happiest with a widget that has no idea what mm-hmm. it is attached to beyond light off on show it doesn't know what that data is it, it it's completely mm. as i like to say dumb as a brick <laughs> i'd say taking that a step further um you don't give it other additional like methods like in the case of a view you know you wouldn't give it uh, a full-fledged thing that tells it you know everything about a completely different controller that does something completely different Interface segregation says, only give me the stuff I care about. You know, again, minimizing the chance of me screwing it up by <laughs> giving me too much power and information at a time. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like, um, you know, when you have a view model, that's a very good example of interface segregation instead of just MVC. I've also been completely irresponsible or responsible for, you know, attaching little helpers so that one control knows what another control is doing when that really should be in the controller level rather than or what one view is doing instead of another view. You know, if I'm on, you turn off, and I do that on the view level, when in fact that shouldn't be in the view level. That should be one view shouldn't know why it's turning on. It should just simply know turn on, and that's on the controller level. And, and we'll be honest here. I mean, all of these things are great practices, and we know that we've all violated every single one of them. You can always go back into your own code and go, oh, God, why did I do that? Yeah. To which, and the mantra everybody needs to remember is, it seemed like a good idea when I wrote it. <laughs> so the thing that I think is, uh, it's if you know that you're violating solid, but you have a reason for it, you're better off than not knowing it and finding it later on, right before you're having to ship it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think I said this last season, and and it, it's it's a it's a rule I was taught in college. By, and, and I was a theater major, which is why I write code for a living. It pays more than waiting tables. <laughs> but one of my professors gave me a rule that I, I've lived by, and that is learn the rules, learn all the rules, why they're there, why they're in place, and then and only then learn how to break every one of them, including this rule that I've just told you. Because it's one thing to blunder through a mistake, and do that. It's another one to go, okay, this was a blunder, but 
it is pretty much the only solution, and now I need to not stop eating myself for breakfast over this blunder. There are times that you look at it and go, yes, I know this code is like this. There's no other solution that I can find currently. I mean, it may be a time trade-off, definitely. Oh, yeah. And again, we talk about the fact that design patterns don't necessarily solve processor or optimization issues. Sometimes processor and optimization issues require you to do things that are a little bit less than ideal. Yes. Sometimes we have to violate it. It's just, it's a starting point. You know, it's, it's not a full-fledged implementation. You start with this and run from there. I mean, I had one interview where the guy looked at me in the interview and he says, do you like doing threads? And I looked him in the eye and I said, does anybody really like doing <laughs> threads? Because if you have somebody who comes in and says, I love doing threads, I personally wouldn't hire them because I'm terrified <laughs> of them. So we, we talked about Sali. Now we are on the D. And the D is dependency inversion. Josh, what, what can you tell us about dependency inversion? To, to break down the, the technical jargon there, basically the idea, and we all know this, controllers shouldn't know about other controllers directly. You know, that, that's normally a bad thing. Views shouldn't know about these, these concrete things that are actually providing them data. Instead, we want to have something in between them. So we want to have a, a protocol, if you will, or a base class at, at the worst case, something that isn't going to change. The idea being that even if we want to change the actual implementation later, if this class doesn't know about it, it's not going to be you know, harmed in the process. The only thing it cares about is does the contract, you know, which is provided by the protocol, is that still you know, the same? If that's the case, it's going to continue working. Um, and a lot of design patterns actually build on this concept. You know, the, the most familiar that we've talked about most of this episode is the, the delegate pattern. It, it exemplifies uh, de dependency inversion in saying that I'm not going to know about what delegate, you know, is given to me. I'm just going to know it's an abstract thing that I can get information from that I need. I always reference uh, a film, yet another reference for you, Jay, uh, called Buckaroo Banzai, which is this bizarre, fun comedy science fiction film where the central character does everything from being a rock star, an adventurer, a brain surgeon. At the very beginning of the film, we see him doing brain surgery with a... a colleague and the colleague is pointing inside the brain and he simply looks at him and says no 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 don't tug on that you don't know what it's connected to and i think that's a good place for us to stop and, and take that step back and say look so the design patterns are a great way well obviously one to write your code two to analyze code or three when you're working with a framework or a third party uh, any third party sdk to say okay this is great and it serves that purpose but is there a way and for those who do uh github copyright Microsoft contributions, <laughs> um, they they can say, okay, this is the way we can clean this up in the next version. Josh, Jay, you have crossed the precipice now. You have done the full I am talking tech thing. I am privileged to have gotten my hands on, uh, on the book early, and I have gone through my section on it. Sometimes it's hard to do the show going, I have to ask this question like I haven't already looked at this stuff yet, because it in some ways, it really was for me like a candy shop going, I love this and and seeing it, seeing examples in Swift as that is my bread and butter really helps. It's it's a good book. Design Patterns by Tutorial. Josh, thank you for coming on the show this week. Thank you guys for having me. Jay, your contributions were great to have. And it was good to hear what you have been laboring on for quite some time. Thanks. Yeah, I'm uh, very proud of that book. 
learned a lot. Yeah, it's like I said, writing a book because it's something that you wish was there, being able to contribute to a book that you need. So it's written even in the language and the wording that you want. That's what makes these books so good. We obviously are going to draw this episode of the Ray Wenderlich podcast to a close. We are on every other Monday. We have another show in two weeks time. Again, I want to thank Josh Green, my wonderful partner, Jay Strawn. We'll see you all again in two weeks. Thanks for listening. As always, if you have questions about the episode, you can leave them in the forums. You can leave messages on our Twitter or give us a like on all the different social media types. But we're pretty much done here. So we have that music in the background, which means the Emerald Castle approaches. Ray, back to you. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendell.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.